And the reality is that everything is basically a guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let, me, let me just clarify. An educated, a well-educated guess? Uh, well, uh, that, that depends on, on who's, who you're asking, basically. But uh, I guess some guesses are better than other guesses. Welcome to the HPA Tune In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're chatting to Oscar from Elmer Racing. Join us all the way from Finland. Elmer Racing is a producer of bespoke billet race engines, and particularly these engines are used in a variety of forms of motorsport. Uh, most specifically, we know the Thor engine that they produce because it holds the World Time Attack lap record, which we'll talk about as we go through uh, our interview with Oscar. Uh, there's a lot to to take in here, particularly when it comes to the design and the development as well as the construction and maintenance of a billet engine. We've seen billet race engines pop up across all forms of motorsport over the last five to ten years. They have become a bit of a buzzword. Uh, but when we get down to the nuts and bolts of these engines, uh, there is definitely a, a a power level where billet engines just make sense and there are going to be purists who argue that the car is no longer a Supra if it's not powered by a, a cast iron block 2JZ or it's no longer a Nissan GTR if it's no longer powered by a, a factory cast alloy VR38 and uh, I'm not really getting into that argument it just gets to a point where if we want to go faster uh, we're going to need components that are going to hang together and be more reliable so so a really interesting chat with Oscar about what goes into the design and development of his particular engines. Now, just for those who maybe aren't aware of what High Performance Academy is, just briefly, we are an online training school. So we specialize in teaching people how to essentially make your car go faster, all manner of automotive performance. Specifically, we focus on engine tuning, both aftermarket standalone as well as factory engine management tuning. Uh, performance engine building, obviously pretty relevant to today's task, today's conversation. We also cover wiring and uh, driver education and car setup. Now, specifically, I just wanted to talk a little bit about a course that is really relevant to today's topic, which is our practical engine building course. Uh, this is something that I know a lot of enthusiasts tend to consider as outside of their realm of, of capabilities and they will entrust their engine build on their project car to either a local performance workshop or maybe their local engine uh, reconditioner. Sometimes that works great however uh, sadly I've seen so many horror stories come up where people have spent their hard earned cash uh, entrusted their performance engine build to one of those two that I've just spoken about and ended up with uh, a really subpar result. Uh, the reality is though it's something that is definitely not too hard for the average enthusiast to do provided you've got a bit of an eye for detail and a bit of patience. Uh, the other good news is that you're not going to have to spend thousands of dollars on specialist tools in order to do that. So our practical engine building course gives you uh, an understanding of what we're actually trying to achieve when we're building a performance engine. How we may need to vary certain aspects such as the clearances inside the engine in comparison to uh, what was suitable for a stock engine 
making factory power at the factory RPM limit. We also produce a 10 step process and you can apply this irrespective of the engine you're personally building. This 10 step process covers the entire engine build from the strip down and inspection through to machining, selecting parts, cleaning and finally assembling your engine and starting it up for the very first time. We've also got a library of worked examples where you can watch that 10 step process being applied from start to finish. As an added bonus here, as a HPA tuned in podcast listener, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75. That's going to get you 75 bucks off the purchase of your very first HPA course, and we'll chuck a link in the description you can follow. All right, with our brief introduction out of the way there, let's get into our interview. All right, welcome to the podcast, Oscar. Great to have you joining us today. And uh, can we start by just talking a little bit about what Alma Racing is and what you do? Uh, yeah, nice to be on here. Um, so uh, Alma Racing, well, we currently sort of primarily try to focus on making uh, complete uh, billet racing engines maybe not only for racing, but that's what we currently do. And we do some uh, racing components also. So uh, billet merge collectors and some uh, custom intake manifold designs and and stuff like that also that we're continuously working on trying to improve the efficiency of, of all of that, that really. Now, being a bit of a detective myself, I can tell from your accent, you're, you're not from around here. Can you give us a, a rundown on where you're joining us from in the world today? Uh, well, our uh, current current work location is in Finland here, so we have a, okay. a nice, cool minus seventeen degrees outside here at at the moment. Sounds balmy. I'll enjoy our summer rather than your winter. Then, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Now, on on this side of the world, you, you're probably best known for your success in the World Time Attack Challenge category, uh, run every year until recently uh, over at Sydney Motorsport Park in Australia. And currently your Thor billet engine powers the RP968 Porsche, which holds the, if I'm right here, the tin top outright lap record around Sydney Motorsport Park and also just barely pipped for outright lap record by uh, Nico Hulkenberg in an A1GP car. So anytime you can get a uh, modified production road car uh, within touch of a wings and slicks race car driven by an F1 driver that that's pretty astonishing now obviously there's a lot that goes into getting that lap time the driver the car uh, the suspension but definitely as we've seen over the years we've been following world time attack engine performance and engine power has just spiraled out of control can you start by talking to us about uh, how you got involved with the RP968 project. Okay, sure. Uh, so uh, Rod, of course, yeah, the mastermind and and uh, boss behind the uh, whole RP968 is, I think, went kind of a little bit out on a limb there, sort of uh, uh, talking to us with, with that engine. We were, uh, at the time, looking at uh, doing uh, billet blocks because we saw that, okay, this is like the easy thing to get started and to uh, to yeah make components for racing engines and and all that good stuff mm-hmm. and we started uh looking into uh doing with a local customer uh or a sort of a collaboration partner or something like that uh, here in here in Finland that was uh doing rallycross at the moment and doing a complete rallycross engine for them because yeah we saw saw some uh, significant improvements uh, could be done done on that 
but that yep. that uh, team sort of a uh, their continuation in the rallycross stuff fell fell through a little bit, and actually at the same time uh, was over at uh, World Time Attack with some other uh, Finnish guys. We had a. Uh, uh, two guys from from Finland they're competing in I think that was 2016 or something so when it went over there there with them and said hi to everyone and yeah met met Rod there and spoke a little bit about the uh, block situation so they wanted more power from their uh, from their uh, 968 engine but it is uh, the block is a known failure point at around 800 900 horsepower and they okay. wanted more than that so okay we looked at the block and okay we can yeah like looking at the dimensions on that block so the bore spacing is really long or yep. like relatively large on that block but the uh, cylinder size is not that large we're like okay i mean if we do a complete cylinder head also we can flip the intake and exhaust over to the uh, other way that they do that to fit a larger turbo uh, in the engine bay and all that stuff like already out yep. of the box so they don't have to have a factory head that they flip around and do manual changes to that and look overall be a much better package and mm-hmm. at that time, also the they had been on the RP nine six eight the car basically continuously like redeveloping things as they conclude that okay they need to like get these parts of the car better and this better again and then they have like end up with these kind of legacy parts that end up sort of not being optimal compared to doing it right from the start start with well like well I mean it would make sense to just like do a complete engine we could get so much more potential out of this it would be so much easier to uh, tune and. Uh, much less sort of potential failure points so we can if there are any issues we can fix anything because we'll be the oem manufacturer of the whole thing basically and uh, yeah he can okay okay, yeah it makes sense to do that so then we uh, started looking at the specs and started uh yeah pushing the design and going for that for the for their car all right there's a a bunch of stuff i want to sort of hit back and, and unpack in there so one of the questions I've got, it sounds like you, you did design this engine to essentially be backward compatible, I guess would be the best term of using with the original Porsche engine. If I'm right there, when you're looking at doing everything custom, including a cylinder head, where is the line between keeping backwards compatibility with the, the factory Porsche geometry, at least to, to some degree, versus something that's completely bespoke, just a clean sheet of paper design with with no uh, factory comparison to the original Porsche engine at all? Um, well, component-wise, mm, there's not really much to take into consideration with that. Uh, of course, uh, we had uh, the, the stringent uh, world time attack engine rules for the pro, pro class to take into consideration that limited us severely. So, what, what are those limits? Just so, just so we know what you're dealing with there. Uh, yeah. So, so that's basically a one liner that says the engine has to be based on a, a factory engine. So that basically said that, okay, like we can't put a, a V7 yeah. engine in there with like a, a well, with a, a super turbocharger or something like that. Well, we could probably, the yeah, boost okay. section we could probably, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it has to at least be somewhat uh, relatable to what was originally in the vehicle. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, basically uh, yeah chose to uh, keep the original bore spacing, uh, to keep the uh, engine mount locations, bell housing uh, fittings, of course, uh, use uh, yes. factory, um, what is it, fa- factory-like uh, blanks, or not factory blanks, but factory compatible blanks for the camshafts and uh, that kind of stuff. So it is, it does share like lots of geometries, even though there isn't like yep. basically a single part from the original engine, but it still has like 
shares sort of um, dimensional wise and and layout wise wise quite a lot actually with the with the nine six eight. Okay, all right. Now you, you mentioned bore spacing, and uh, I'm assuming that why that's important is that's going to drive what you can use in terms of a maximum bore diameter while still retaining yep. sufficient strength or material between adjacent bores. Oh uh, yeah, that is correct. So, and that okay, also so- is something that will limit valve size, of course, which is really yes, what, what yep. you yeah one of the major factors for for engine design and RPM range and stuff like that. Okay, so that then drives the next question. You've got a, a bit more freedom around bore and stroke over what the original uh, 968 engine used. And these decisions that you make, particularly with stroke, then you've got the rod to stroke ratio to consider. And these both kind of drive what your maximum RPM ceiling is likely to be. So how how do you weigh up these design parameters when you're deciding? Obviously, uh, the old saying goes, there's no replacement for displacement. Well, we, we have boost now, so that's arguable, but uh, you know, definitely there can be some, some significant upsides in terms of boost response with a large turbo when we've got more capacity to drive that turbo in the first instance. So yeah, can, can you give us a bit of an understanding of your design philosophy around uh, the border stroke versus the outright capacity? Uh, yeah, well, we basically, so our uh, goal, of course, it design, depends on what you're designing the engine for. For these uh, racing type engines that we're currently working on, you really want to get the uh, best uh, power to mass ratio you you possibly can out of the package. And then there are other parameters that are not as important, like uh, external vibrations, for instance, on the engine and, and uh, yeah, fuel economy, all of this stuff, of course, that... I mean, it has some kind of influence, but it's so small that it is it's like virtually zero. In especially for time attack, we only need to carry fuel for for the outlap, flying lap, and the in lap. So, if you can mm. reduce fuel consumption by five percent or whatever, that's not going to make any kind of measurable uh, influence at all. If you can like reduce the engine weight by two hundred grams, that's probably going to be like worth more. Mm-hmm. More, yeah. So yeah, we basically want to uh, pack as as big of a bore as we can possibly fit in the engine engine sort of a exterior size so that allows us to yeah. run as large valves as possible and the valve size is is ultimately what's going to be the limiting factor because with displacement that doesn't really help if you don't like have the rpm also mm-hmm. so so you want the the basically a really high naturally aspirated power so then you don't need to add as much boost on top of that to get the whatever power level you want to be at and the less boost yeah. you need the uh, less ECU tuning problems there are, the less sort of uh, anti-lag stuff you need, and it's like a much easier setup overall. You have lower EGTs and everything lives longer and everything gets easier, sort of the less boost you need. So So I think it's probably fair to say that the mainstream philosophy around, well, that I see at least in World Time Attack has been take a a factory engine, probably these days, replace the factory block with a off-the-shelf billet and then put a, a, a large turbo on that engine and jam as much boost into it as you possibly can to get the power you're targeting. So your philosophy has been almost the opposite. Build a, a very high-powered, naturally aspirated engine and then use a small amount of boost to get to your power target. Uh, yeah. Um, although, I mean, looking back on it, like with the com- starting from a complete blank sheet, for instance, uh, I don't think our Thor engine is optimal for... for uh, for time attack use, it's it's too powerful for that really. 
because the sort okay. of amount of boost you can like sort of dial down to like once you start going below sort of a 250 kpa map or something like that then then the lag isn't really that much of an issue anymore below that so you want to be able okay. to use at least that much uh a boost pressure really and our engine basically produces too much power to be usable at that that boost amount uh, so so you would probably so you want to run like a problems with wheel spin yeah 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 so at lower speeds uh uh traction issues and then at at higher speed uh, tire longevity because they run so insane amounts of downforce that the more power you push into the car at high speed you get more speed and more downforce and then you end up crushing the sidewalls on the tires and you end up uh, sort of uh, starting delaminating the layers there and the sidewalls and the tire of course comes apart after that so so yeah, yeah limited on we, we have <laughs> both sides yeah we, we have we have definitely seen it appears that um well, time attacks probably starting to edge towards finding the limits of uh, a dot approved tire. So um, we'll see how that that pans out. But uh, that's uh, an issue, but probably not not our main uh, sort of angle for today's interview. So just coming back to the capacity, uh, I am definitely not a Porsche 968 uh, fanatic, so I don't know too much about the stock engine. Can you give us the stock capacity versus what your Thor engine is? Uh, so I think that um, I'm not super well well sort of uh, memorized on that, but I think the uh, 968 engine is basically based off the uh, 9, uh, 924 and 944 engine, which I think was about a 2.8 liter or something like that, and then was bumped up to 3 liter displacement. And yeah, we bumped that up. So with the same exterior dimensions to 4,000 cc for our Thor okay, engine. So four liter from, from three liter. So that's a pretty significant uh, improvement for a four cylinder engine. Yeah. And, yeah, and it that's, makes for a very large capacity four cylinder. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something you can't really do without going with a custom cylinder head because yeah, there's not going to be any material to seal uh, against anymore with the bore size we want to run. We could increase the stroke, of course, also even further than what we have currently. But yeah, again, I mean, yeah, for okay. time attack what, use. What's the, the stroke at the moment? Um, I think we're at 96, 94 millimeters. Wait, I have that open here. Let's see if I have that on our website or not. Um, actually, I don't think we have that here. Um, something around <laughs> that range anyway. Okay. <laughs> and, and what does that allow you in terms of, uh, an upper rev limit? Uh, well, they have run the RP968 to 8,500, but we would expect for drag racing use probably 10,500 would be a more realistic value value for sure. that okay which is interesting because i know with that engine you do have uh, some sort of suggested upper limits for for power and you do separate these between sort of circuit use time attack use and drag racing so what's your sort of suggested limit for the engine for those two applications uh so for circuits racing use so that's like a continuous use at at the uh, power level we recommend a thousand five hundred horsepower for that and for yeah. uh, short duration use where we're not sure about the sort of thermal balance and stuff like that, and you need to run the RPM really high to reach that, we recommend about 3,000 horsepower would be our sort of uh, estimate for drag racing use for that with okay. the uh, increased RPM range. And then, of course, that requires more turbo uh, tur turbocharger RPM and uh, boost from that also to reach that power level. So that makes it impractical for, for circuit racing use. But of course, yeah, again, naturally. for... Time attack use probably optimal engine would be smaller than than this because it's again too powerful with the sort of power output. So 
But yeah, a three-cylinder Thor engine would again have some more balancing issues, so <laughs> not ideal either. I mean, on the electronics front, though, we, we do have a lot of, of uh, control at our fingertips in terms of manipulating drive-by-wire throttle opening, boost pressure, etc., cetera, uh, to help tame down uh, an engine that's producing too much torque at lower, lower road speed. So I, I assume... Given the results, the the PR Tech team that run the the nine six eight Porsche are probably all over that. Uh, yeah, I think that was yeah one of the things that they're working on now for uh, well originally the the twenty twenty one but now the twenty twenty two what was it uh, beginning of April I think uh, race yeah. as it's currently scheduled. So that is one of the things they're working on now to be able to to get the boost control to keep boost. Uh, much lower uh, as required at the lower rpm so that makes just makes a uh, tuning much easier basically than having to to run a blow-off valve sort of a partly open to limit boost pressure or like do ignition curves or stuff like that it's just a, a yep. sort of less laborious way to to manage power and of course with yeah with drag racing use you couldn't do that because you need to ramp up the power probably faster during the run than that would would be would be possible but for a uh, yeah circuit use where you can't put down or you can't accelerate that quickly then yeah you can ramp in power much slower so doing that with boost makes makes sense in that application yeah absolutely so it's coming back to your initial design for the thor engine so you, you mentioned that the factory engine in the 968 had some known weaknesses so if someone's looking at development of an engine and you know they they aren't necessarily sure what the failure points are going to be what sort of validation do you do or how do you go about finding out what where those weak points are going to be so that you can address those and make sure that they're dealt with when you're building a bespoke block um that's yeah, excellent question. I, I kind of want to say that I have no clue actually about that because it's not really really what we do. But of course, I mean some some sort of um, general assumptions. I mean, if you're really sort of looking into doing a, a project as cost effective as possible, I would say that sort of if if it's not extremely well known uh, issues with the current package you have and weight wise, it's it's like suitable for your use. Then I would say just just push it harder, push it harder, keep pushing it until something blows up. Then figure out, okay, like is this is this something that we can address or not, or is this actually going to limit us from reaching our our uh, target power or not? And no. then based on that, sort of decide on on how to go forward. Because sort of trying to analyze uh, OEM production uh, components sort of non destructively is extremely time ex- time intensive. So I think blowing it up is is much more sort of a overall a much cheaper and effective way to do that than trying to sort of calculate things or anything like that from a oem oem thing i i think yeah we talk about people learning to tune by blowing up engines i just want to be clear that that's a very different angle we're talking about here we're we're talking (laughs) about destructive testing to find the the power and torque limits or cylinder pressure limits of of an engine which is a very different aspect and i mean I, i think not that I am a mechanical engineer, I, I guess that makes a lot of sense when, you know, if you look at software validation of these sorts of things, uh, ultimately 
getting the the details from an OE engine to be able to develop a good model uh, would probably be difficult, if not impossible. So I, I, I guess you're probably dealing with a, a situation of, of garbage in, garbage out. So how, how useful yeah. is that model when you can actually do some real world testing? And the other thing that's it's really relevant here is, I mean, if you're dealing with a popular engine that is well developed in the aftermarket, usually these things are fairly well understood because you're going down a path that's well trodden. So you can learn from the expense of other people's mistakes and, and understand where, where these engines fail. Yeah, yeah that is, of uh, course, also something to take into consideration when you're looking at uh, what other people are doing and where the sort of limits are like to figure out like okay like what kind of way are they pushing the limits at like if they're just running um mbt timing and blowing up engines at some specific power level then that basically means okay cylinder pressure whatever 250 bar or whatever is is causing the issues then yep. okay if you just limit yourself to to 249 bar but run the engine much less efficiently so drop the uh, compression ratio when run retarded timing and much 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 higher boost pressure you can probably make uh, sort of a rule of thumb would be probably twice the amount of power with the same max cylinder pressure but your egts are going okay. to be the limiting factor at some point and of course you're going to have horrible horrible lag on the thing but you can like push things much further if you're sort of aware of how the sort of mechanics actually work and not just trying to make sort of maximum power capable, but looking at the limiting factor and then pushing that factor up to its limit and then looking what else can we do to sort of get more power while being under this specific limit. Yeah, I, I think I think something that that is is easy to sort of overlook is when you're tuning an engine on the dyno and, and you're optimizing everything you just mentioned that term mbt which is where we're, we're basically optimizing the timing until the engine is making peak torque or maximum torque at each point through the rev range so basically the timing is then optimized assuming that we can get there without encountering knock and peak torque or peak cylinder pressure as you sort of more correctly say there that that's going to be a limiting factor for component failure but uh, what we also see if you look at a, a torque curve obviously it starts low it comes up and it peaks somewhere maybe uh, mid of, middle of the rev range or a little bit lower and then naturally the, the airflow through the cylinder head starts to fall away and our torque drops away so what, what we can find is an engine where we know there's a limit on how much torque we can actually make on the dyno while holding the, the rods together well what we can do is, is is artificially limit that peak torque value and and then higher in the rev range we can then basically increase the boost pressure or optimize the timing or both in order to basically hold that torque relatively flat so what that does is uh actually produces more power oh, higher yeah. in the rev range yeah you could definitely so do that, that also but but uh what i'm talking about is also making more torque while maintaining the your cylinder pressures yep. under peak levels which is Yep. Yeah, also possible. Just doing that sort of later in the stroke, or la later in the uh, in the combustion stroke. So you basically, for for MBT, you typically will have like a peak pressure around like 12, 15 degrees after top dead center or something like that. But moving that later to like much, thirty much degrees or something, then you can push much higher higher um, yep. yeah tor torque output from the engine while still maintaining the force levels at, at the uh, same same level. But because that combustion is happening much later in the cylinder in the combustion cycle, that's why you are then creating a lot more exhaust gas temperature and yep. a lot more inefficiency. Yep. So yep. 
you, you're not you're not actually extracting as much power out of the the fuel and air that's being combusted yep. as as it potentially could offer, but you're holding the engine together. Yeah, yeah. So that's only yeah viable for a certain race class like time attack, for instance. Maybe if you can deal with anti lag drag racing, definitely probably some kind of other like drag racing similar stuff like like tractor pulling or something like that i would assume you could be be very happy at doing that that also yeah i think uh my, my gut feel there is for for circuit racing uh the egt would probably become a problem before you finished a full flying lap if you were running yep. very retarded uh ignition timing in order to use that that tuning philosophy I don't. I don't have any data to back that up. Yeah, exhaust valves might end up melting before you complete a, few, a couple of laps. It, it's a valid discussion, though, because it, it, it's another area where you know pe- people view tuning and, and engine design. I think is black and white, but but there are just a whole lot of different shades of grey here. There's there's no sort of one solution of getting a result it's just understanding the implications of the tuning philosophy you're applying how yeah. that's going to affect the engine's performance and how it's going to uh, affect the engine's reliability and then again in this instance just understanding the implications of exhaust gas temperature versus the time that you're running the engine for yeah, yeah. those are all like uh, completely interlinked also so it's not just a yeah. question of designing the best engine or like uh, tuning the engine the best way possible. If you can design an engine to take the sort of tuning options into account and likewise also like you're like collaborating with that, then you can get a much more effective overall package. And yeah, that's one of the things we're doing with our own uh, electronics and of course with the uh, Rallycross engine engine that we originally started with also. So so that's like a okay. really overall package thing that needs to be taken into consideration. There are significant gains that could, depending again on the race category. So some categories mm-hmm. might have a benefit and some categories not so much. Well, we'll move, move on and actually want to come back a step and just talking about uh, the pros and cons of factory engine blocks versus going billet. I mean, obviously there's there's a, a relatively steep expense curve when, when you go away from the production block, but we've seen, at least in the past, most OE manufacturers tended to favour a cast iron block, which for our performance application tended to work pretty well. Obviously it's not bulletproof, but uh, you know, cast iron was a fairly strong material, all things considered. Then for various reasons, including weight saving, most later model production engine blocks ended up going to uh, a cast alloy. So can you sort of talk to us about the pros and cons of alloy versus cast iron in terms of strength and how both of those sort of compare strength-wise to a billet block? That's yeah, the cast iron stuff I'm not actually that super familiar with. I do have some like okay. generic values, but I don't really know like what the modern sort of uh cast iron, what kind of uh alloys they they can use and how strong those those really are. But for uh, like sort of serious motorsport use, that that is really too heavy to to be sort of a a reasonable starting point anyway. So it's yeah, sure. not really sort of something that that is it needs to be taken that much into consideration, but uh, thermal ex- mm-hmm. thermal expansion wise, there are of course benefits by with using cast iron. So, for instance, with the main bearing clearances and and stuff like that, that is definitely something that that would be very interesting to be able to incorporate into into a, a billet aluminum. But um, yeah, unfortunately, thermal expansion rates don't work that way. But uh, yeah, then looking at the uh, sort of um, cast aluminum alloy stuff. Um, aluminum is a interesting alloy sort of casting wise because 
uh, the sort of really strong aluminum alloys are not castable at all, or maybe okay. they are castable, but just really poorly castable or something like that. So it doesn't make sense. So the the uh, alloy strength that we can use on our, or that we use in our, our uh, billet engines is like an uh, improvement on the uh, 7075 uh, alloy, which is probably around sort of three times as strong as as uh, cast cast aluminum engine blocks just the raw material but of okay. course the the um yeah stiffness is is ex- basically exactly the same and thermal expansion rate is actually a little bit worse so there are some trade-offs okay. there though so i mean you're just talking about three times the strength but that's taking into account a like for like design i assume then you can yeah, just just the raw material even further yeah, yeah. okay by, by by changing the design. So one of the things with uh, an alloy block is we can't run the, the piston rings directly on the alloy. So we're talking here about both uh, aftermarket billet blocks as well as factory. There's a variety of options, including sleeves or coatings such as Nicosol, et, et cetera. Uh, what, what are you doing in your own billet blocks? Um, so this is, yeah, one of the things where there are like, yeah, lots of different uh, solutions and yeah, some solutions that that I don't really regard very highly might be absolutely fine for some applications. So, so just because we're not using something doesn't mean that it's it's necessarily always bad. But uh, for instance, the um, the wet sleeve type things, for instance, we try to stay away from those as much as possible unless there's some incredibly stringent like requirement for that, because that just reduces okay. your your uh, overall engine rigidity or the torsional rigidity of the engine a lot. So you want to really have the raw uh, block material between the cylinders to keep that that as as stiff as possible and that has a really large influence on the on the uh, overall engine rigidity so okay. so we want to keep that as much as possible uh so on our uh, thor and rex engines we run uh, uh as thin dry dry sleeves as as possible so I'm not going to go into super details on how thin we we dare run those but we would want to dare to run those even thinner actually just basically a, a coating on that and uh, for okay. our uh, V6 Hill engine, we're uh, going with a plasma spray directly on the uh, block material. So the, that sounds like a, a quite a, a departure from what we see with mainstream aftermarket billet blocks, where most most of the manufacturers are, are running something like a, a Darton, Darton ductile iron sleeve that's then a, sort of a, a semi-press fit into the block. So you you've gone a very different a direction there with this thin dry sleeve uh well i mean that's basically uh what we use on our uh yeah uh, rex rex and thor engines currently so uh, uh thin ductile okay. iron uh, dry sleeve that is just uh, yeah inserted we have we do have a lip on the top also so it's not just just a sleeve but uh, a lip on the top but okay. yeah we're moving away from that now with a hell engine and going with a plasma spray i think that's the okay. way, way to move forward all right, so just to come back a step, so you said with the, the wet sleeve, and could you just define for our listeners what a, a wet sleeve is and, and why you you've sort of don't prefer that, that option? Okay, um, so with a, a wet sleeve, basically uh, in engines where you have a relatively uh, long stroke, you need to have, and, uh, have continuous use, you need to have a cooling uh, in the block itself. And yep. machining that from a billet is gets kind of difficult. So you see some designs where you have like a bolt-on, like um, uh, what are they like plates from the side or something to to seal that up and machine and have those machined from the side. And you see 
uh, different type of of solutions where basically sort of try uh, i mean try to figure or like how different people try to figure that out in, in the sort of a most economical and economical and feasible way for for their products and one of the really easy ways to do that is just to machine the basically the cylinder section out of the block completely and then just have wet sleeves so basically where you have the cylinder on the inside uh, seals to the crankcase and then wet meaning that the, it's that the outside of the sleeve is in contact with the cooling cooling uh uh, pocket then so that is basically yeah, a wet sleeve and a dry sleeve will then be completely dry so it's not in contact with the coolant uh, at uh, any point so it's completely surrounded by by actual engine block material so the 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 wet sleeve design just to to sort of sum up what you're saying there it, from a a machining perspective it's easier to add a water jacket to a billet block yeah yeah a lot and, and a lot then incorporate a, a wet sleeve okay yeah but that wet sleeve is then only supported essentially at the deck surface of the block and then at the bottom of that sleeve where it locates into the block. Yep. So that's where the the rigidity uh, and, and strength lacks over a dry sleeve. Uh, well, I, it's it's not really a, a problem with the sleeve as, as such. I mean, those can be easily designed to be strong, strong enough, I think. Although with sure. them being like separate sleeves, like at the joint section, I don't think you could run as... Thin, like as high of a bore to bore spacing ratio, but probably you could get pretty close to that. But but sort of the rigidity that we're after is like the overall engine rigidity, and that mm, if you have mm, okay. if you just have the engine block basically milled out, so you have a, a square sort of section with a big hole in the middle, where you have yep. uh, just uh, in this case. So in the case of our Thor engine, for instance, if you had like four separate uh, wet sleeves in there, then the overall package is is much much less sort of a rigid in in torsion so when you're like uh, applying torque from the front of the engine block that how much the engine though both the engine block and of course the whole assembled engine like how much that that uh, flexes and uh, yeah that that is something that we we want to keep as rigid as possible and uh, as reasonably rigid as possible of course and that yeah overall will will cause much less issues and the engine will have a much longer life so you won't have the problem that you hear about with uh, V8 drag racing engines, for instance, with uh, MID type sleeves where, okay, well, if the engine is like a half a degree, like non-straight, then that's still within tolerances and you could put it back together again and just put the cylinder heads on and it will sort of straighten out from the uh, torque of the cylinder yeah. heads. And we're like, yeah, that's maybe pushing it a little bit too far for our taste. Like we prefer yeah, things okay. to be a little bit more, and especially for circuit racing stuff where you might have suspension loads and stuff like that go- being sort of inadvertently going through the engine block then yeah you really want to have a, a high stiffness on that yeah no, that, that, that makes perfect sense uh i mean is the dry sleeve option what was the what's the options there you know with a let's go back a step sorry i'll get my my thoughts in order here uh, with an individual uh, mid sleeve you know we we can if if the worst happens and we have a, a, a an engine failure or something goes bad that uh scores really badly one cylinder uh it, it is possible to remove and replace an individual sleeve with a dry sleeve uh, i assume that's a press fit essentially an interference fit into the the block that sounds to me like that would be difficult or impossible or, or, or is it still serviceable in that way? Um, yeah, it is. Especially if you don't need to do that uh, track side, then it's no problem at all. Definitely sure. definitely serviceable. Um, track side could be done, but then it would uh, specifically do a relatively uh, low sort of force press fit 
which gets mm-hmm. kind of difficult with the tolerances because when you have a round sort of sleeve, it's actually not round. And then once it's very, very thin, you basically sort of measure the the uh, the circumference of that and fit that into this the uh, block. Because uh, of course, when you once you put it into a round hole and it's really thin, then of course it's round after that. But getting the sort yeah. of a correct press fit for that is is uh, kind of difficult. But it is definitely doable. So you can have a, for instance, for drag racing use, you can have a tool where you can like get the press fit out manually at the track or something like that. It's it's very doable. Uh, it's it's one of those things where obviously that that's a worst case scenario, and I mean any time you're trackside trying to replace a sleeve, you're having a pretty bad weekend <laughs> from the get go. But even if we're not talking about trackside repair, obviously you know people are investing a fairly large chunk of cash into a block or an engine of this nature. So the the long term serviceability, even if it is between races and not trackside, is something that still still does need yep. to be considered. Uh, I I know that you've mentioned the plasma coating for your Hell engine, and, and we're going to park that for a moment because I've still got a few areas that I want to talk about here. So we will we will jump into that because that's something that does interest me. But before we do that, I just want to talk about uh, head gasket integrity. And, and this anyone who's listened to our podcast for a while will will know this is a. a, a a pet topic of mine, uh, reason being that uh, back in my drag racing days, that kind of became the limiting factor or the fuse for how much boost and, and then hence how much power we could realistically produce from an engine. And particularly when you're dealing with production parts, uh, these, yep. these engines aren't designed to handle three, four or five bar of boost pressure. So it, it really is a problem. When you're going billet with both the block and the head, does does that just become uh, a, a non-issue, or is it still something you need to factor in with your design? Um, I would say that is probably an even bigger issue with uh, billet designs, unless you're specifically designing for that, okay. um, because the uh, the designs sort of tend to be uh, stiffer, which. Well, I guess it depends on on what kind of a type of a head gasket you're you're uh, running, really. Uh, but mm-hmm. but yeah, the the sort of stiffer the design is, then then the sort of uh, less uh, less uh, uh, for forgiving it is basically if you if you don't have have the uh, the sort of clamping forces uh, sort of thought thought out correctly. So if you have a really yeah. high clamping force in some location, well, that's fine. The head gasket is not going to leak there. But then when you have a clamping force that is much lower at an, another location, then yeah, that's where you're going to to see uh, leakage issues or potentially blowouts, or depending on what type of a gasket gasket you're using. So, so that that is something that is actually one of the more difficult uh, things to design for with uh, with our uh, with our engines, at least. The the mainstream sort of thought process, at least for a, a mildly modified street engine that's turbocharged, would be, well, let's run an aftermarket MLS modular steel style head gasket and uh, an aftermarket stud kit, and uh, we're just going to apply more torque to the studs, and that's going to hold the head down. Now, that works to a degree, but at least in my experience, particularly with some of the the very high-grade materials and likes of ARP for their head studs, the amount of torque we can produce or can apply to those studs and the amount of clamping force they provide. My, my concern has always been, uh, are we clamping the head, as you've mentioned there, perfectly around the studs and, and then having the, the relatively weak factory casting actually kind of bow out between the adjacent studs, hence actually 
fixing one area of a problem and, and maybe making the area between the adjacent studs actually more likely to fail. Is that yep. what, what's your take on that? Uh, yeah, that is uh, basically how it works. So, so yeah, it's easy to think of like a billet block or a, or a cylinder head or something like, yeah, I mean, these are really like stiff and you can like push it on mm. it with your finger and it's not going to move at all. But, but then when you start sort of applying actual loads to the stuff, then everything flexes basically. Yeah. And uh, in addition to like overall how much the engine, how much engine torsion there is and all that kind of uh, overall vibrations in the, in the engine, then you have the uh, cylinder pressures and the uh, pistons rattling around everywhere and all, all of that moving around on the stuff. So, uh, and yeah, and then the uh, clamping loads and the forces basically. So, yeah, since we're not going to have any uh, video for this, so basically if you, uh, yeah, viewers could like imagine if you take like two sponges and hold those against each other and you like clamp those with your fingers from like the outer edges and then, okay, if we mm. need more sealing in the middle of those and you just like squeeze the edges like further together, then that might actually make the sort of gap in the middle like even worse. So, yeah, so yeah, it's of course not that extreme, but sort of an overall sort of a view on how how like the physics behind that works. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I just wanted to raise that because most people would just consider that as a solution, just better quality studs and, and we're good to go. But we we can actually get ourselves into a situation where we fix one area and, and make another worse, which sort of really comes down to it being a multifaceted aspect of the stiffness of the, the deck surface of the block, uh, the head itself, and then also the, the gasket that we're, we're using, uh, which brings me to, to that aspect of it for high boost applications, particularly your Thor engine in, in a full-on drag application, 3,000 odd horsepower. What, what's your sort of preferred sealing method for head gaskets? Uh, we would still be going with uh, MLS uh, as recommended for that. Uh, definitely. Okay. It's, so it's no just... need for uh, a ceiling ring or O-ring or anything of that nature? Uh, no, no, not at the moment. Uh, with our authority, of course, we don't really have data for like really high power outputs uh, yet. But we do have from, from our Rex engine that has been been run with uh, yeah, factory uh, MLS gasket and run that that to yeah, as, as uh, high cylinder pressures as the... Uh, uh, team then testing dared, dared run on that and um, yeah no issues with the head gasket at all so so fa okay. fairly confident that sort of the the philosophy and stuff like that that we incorporate and the designs uh, we do with that like uh, work works as intended so I don't think we're going to have a head gasket fail before we start uh, getting other failures on, on components right. and of course okay. then then if you don't have a problem with that then of course running MLS gasket you just basically re reuse a gasket uh multiple times uh, you don't have any sealing stuff you don't have lots of uh, tiny details to put in place and stuff like that so so i think it's a overall uh, best, best solution that also uh is really good for for maintaining sort of a, a good sort of a head to block sort of uh interface so when you clamp that down you're sort of using the head to to increase the uh, rigidity of the overall engine package so you don't just have like cool. a a single ring where you have like a really high force and then low force in other areas, but you sort of have some kind of a reasonable sort of distribution of that clamping, um, the total clamping sort of distribution to get uh, as a, as rigid a package as, package as possible. All right now, another question that I'm quite interested in in hearing your take on uh, your your experience on, I should say, really is when we're assembling a, a billet block. Now, I've heard various conversations with people around uh, required 
uh, bearing clearances relative to uh, a factory cast iron block uh, versus a factory cast alloy block and and what we need to do there given the the thermal expansion of the material so what what's your your recommendations is this something you can sort of share with us or you know what is there anything special that actually needs to be done there is the are the clearances not really too much different to to what we would expect with a, a factory alloy block um it's not really that big of a difference so so it's mostly uh, would would be due to the yeah thermal expansion rate difference between whatever alloy uh, your block would would be then if it's the uh, typical uh, 6061 or 6068 mm-hmm. wait um 6068 well i don't remember but yeah the two alloys that are typically used that are basically the exact same alloy or, or then the sure. uh, yeah 7075 type that we're using so those uh, those have a slightly higher expansion rate than than the cast alloys but it's not that big of a difference but yeah, again, it depends. If you need to be able to start the engine uh, cold started at minus thirty degrees in the uh, yeah finish winter for a rally rally event, then you might not be able to go super tight on the clearances. But other than that, I mean, yeah, basically would would want to run really small clearances. Just, I mean, it it makes the uh, sort of um, engine behave better. Also, the less sort of uh, the smaller the uh, the gaps you can run, so you have a less sort of um, amount of oil oil flow going through there so you need a smaller yep. oil pump and and yeah again less less heat into the oil system from the oil pump and sure. yeah so there's there's two very different design philosophies there around a bespoke uh race engine like your billet block versus modifying a production factory engine so with with a production engine, generally the 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 rule of thumb is that if we're taking a factory engine and we're going to double or triple or quadruple the power and also run it significantly further in the rev range, and it sort of comes back to what you were saying before, that cast iron block or cast alloy block, when it's sitting there on the workbench and you're assembling it, seems nice and rigid, nice and stiff, nothing's moving, but of course at 10,000 RPM and 1,000 horsepower, the, there's so much force, so so much pressure inside the the block that all of those components do flex. So typically, we build the engine with a slightly looser bearing clearance than the factory tolerance, just yep. so that when the block and the crankshaft are flexing around, we've got uh, essentially more oil between the crankshaft journal and the bearing surface so we we get away or we reduce the chances of metal to metal contact but the, as you mentioned there's downsides with that when we've got looser clearances we need uh, more oil volume to retain oil pressure typically we'll also match that with uh, a thicker viscosity oil from the get-go as well to get our oil pressure yeah. where we want so that's not a problem because of your billet block so that the Clearance stuff is a small trade-off. So if you run a larger clearance, you can't run as high as high forces through that bearing anymore because the contact patch mm-hmm. is going to be more concentrated. But of course, sure. when you're uh, pushing stuff and crankshafts are flexing and stuff, you need to have enough clearance so that when when yeah block flexes, crankshaft flexes, that you're not like binding the corners of the bearings yeah. uh, of the bearing surfaces. Won't last very long. Yeah. Yeah, then it's going to be yeah destroy itself very quickly and start melting the bearing and can have the bearing like melt out in between like the surfaces and that's not a pretty picture. But yeah, we've done lots of those in like the pre pre um, uh, Elmer Racing sort of uh, uh, design days when we were just fooling around and having fun on on circuit racing stuff. We've we've melted our fair share of bearings. Yeah. 
yeah, no, normally it doesn't doesn't end up making you feel very good when that happens because it's going to create a, a fairly expensive mess that you're going to have to fix. <laughs> yep. Okay, I just wanted to clear that up because this is a question we quite often get asked about bearing clearances and just understanding that, that again, like I, I mentioned earlier in the chat, there's, there's not a lot of black and white here. It's about understanding the 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 specifications of what we're dealing with and the implications that that drives, whether we can go tighter on our clearances and gain an advantage there, or again, with the production engine, that's probably not going to work in your favour long term if you're making very high power levels. I just want to talk a little bit about the validation of your design. So, you know, before you actually produce the first Thor engine in its entirety, uh, what do you do to kind of validate that, yes, this engine is actually going to work, yes, it's going to run in drag racing trim to let's say 10,500 RPM and 3,000 horsepower and it's going to give a a long and healthy service life? Uh, Well, ideally you you would want to say like, yeah, we we looked at all the different uh, details and uh, calculated the oil stuff and calculated the heat expansion of all the components and looked at the valve train and what kind of uh, spring stiffness there needs to be and taken all the sort of uh, potential misfires into account and all of that. And the reality is that everything is basically a guess. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let me let me just clarify: an educated, a well-educated guess. Uh, well, uh, that that depends on on who's who you're asking, basically. But uh, I guess some guesses are better than other guesses. Um, always, so so something to take take into consideration. But I mean, uh, if we're being completely honest, I mean, there's absolutely no way to to like properly design. Engine at that these kind of a price ranges at all to like uh, so this kind of comes back to sort of uh, yeah, my view of the cost of most cost cost effective way to develop something might just be to blow it up and see what what blows up at at what power level and and under what cool. conditions and then you analyze that and hopefully if you've done that smartly so if you've been slowly building up to that and then you find the limit and then you know okay how far are we from where we need to be. And then you yeah. uh, take it from there, basically, because if you actually like looked at absolutely everything in detail, which you absolutely could do, but then it would probably cost somewhere in the range of like two to five million or something to develop one engine, and that's just not feasible yeah, at, at these levels. So, so you need to do basically every single thing that you think there's a good chance that you can get away with just a guess. That that is a guess, mm-hmm. a- absolutely. And I'm not ashamed to say that because that allows us to do these engines at these like. I mean, compared to what they are at these insanely affordable uh, prices, which of yeah. course, compared to other engines, might not might not be affordable, but compared to like a complete engine with with these uh, mounts, and yeah, so far uh, so good. So I would want to sort of say that our guess ratio is is better than than what I've anticipated, and yeah, so far no failures. So so yeah, wait, waiting to see on what the first sort of uh, failed guess will be. Well, I, I guess no failures suggest that your guesses have probably been pretty much on, on the money so far. And, and I think just to come back one step, I mean, people listening to this, you, we do need to understand that you're, you're, you don't have a research and development budget of an OE manufacturer. Uh, so th- there's levels to this stuff. I mean, obviously, uh, you, your engines are, are not 
going to be cheap by relative terms. Uh, There's an expensive billet engine that's had a lot of of work go into the design and development, but yeah, that pales into insignificance compared to the sort of budgets that an OE manufacturer would put into producing a, a new yep. engine. So that's what people probably do need to to keep in mind. Yeah, um, th- well, these days that were... of course, yeah, depends a little bit. So I mean, technically, we are a, a OEM manufacturer because we manufacture the whole engine, specify all the parts, order all the parts and everything. Cool. But of course, the sort of quantity wise, it's completely different. So if we're operating with a team of three to four guys and we do uh, uh, engine design in in under one year with like a, yeah. the first part ready then if you look at some some uh yeah uh, aftermarket or not aftermarket but like uh sort of a factory race trim stuff for like f1 or lmp1 or something they have tens of millions of of uh yeah euros budget and run sort of a development program of two to three years with like sure. 200 people maybe overall or some something in that size range anyway so yeah, completely yeah, so sort of different range. These days with solid modeling software that's available, which I can only imagine you you lean on heavily for the development oh, of yeah. an engine like this. Finite element stress analysis is is definitely something that these modeling software packages can do. Is that a useful technique to sort of validate these guesses, or is it just something you're you're not even worried about? Uh, that that is, I think, uh, absolute necessity. Necessity. I mean, we would not be able to do this uh, at all without um, affordable five-axis CNC stuff, um, affordable uh, cam packages with. Uh, FEM stuff and um, yeah, this absolute necessity. Otherwise, otherwise you would be looking at yeah having fifty guys drawing drawing on pieces of paper, mm. <laughs> paper and uh, getting sort of a uh, uh, specialized factories to do the the casting stuff with like expert casting guys trying to figure out from the drawings like when you see like old school F one engine stuff from like Cosworth and stuff. Those were, mm. but those those guys were really good at their job. But having like uh, 3D CAD packages with uh, FEM stuff, that's of course, you have to be able to use those effectively also. Just getting those and starting to use them is not necessarily going to improve things at all. You really have to understand like how things work overall, especially with the FEM stuff. If if you sort of uh, understand how it works and what kind of things... You can calculate what kind of a sort of shortcuts you can take, uh, what what the results will mean depending on on how you've calculated them. Uh, th- then you can be really really effective. But if you're sort of doing starting to do design iterations, or you have to work with some ex- external place, for instance, do the manufacturing and and uh, have some other place to like help with the strength calculations, then your budget is going and time frame is going to like ten x immediately because it's going to yeah, be yeah. so so inefficient. So you know, over the last, well, let me say, ten years, I guess we've kind of seen a, a number of manufacturers come on board with with billet block and billet engine design components, or full full billet engines, I should say. Really. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Uh, whereas, whereas at the start of my career, that that just wasn't in existence. Back when I was drag racing with a Mitsubishi four G sixty three, there was literally zero option for a billet block. Now I could probably buy a billet block from. At least a couple of manufacturers. So, do, do you see that that sort of explosion, relative explosion, in billet engine parts and blocks come with the advancements in three D modeling software and the the relative affordability of that now? Uh, I would think so. Yeah, 
Yeah, in the last, um, I think I think probably in the last ten years, sort of the the main turnaround stuff. I think you probably have done that twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, maybe if you were on the cutting edge of stuff. But things were mm. so expensive then that mm, not sure really how cost effective it would have been. But yeah, especially in the last uh, ten years, yeah, you can get affordable CAD packages, and if you sort of put the uh, time and effort and sort of the the mental attitude into into really understanding how things work then yeah you can you have been able to do this stuff and i think that's one of the yeah i mean one of the reasons why we're, we're here also so uh, really really uh, mm. happy about that progress and i, I think it, it sort of everything progressed at the same time though because relatively speaking 10 years ago uh, we didn't have people and I'll focus here on drag racing because that's sort of the area that I, I probably had most exposure. We we didn't have people producing sort of 3,000 plus horsepower from a Toyota 2JZ. Uh, there weren't cars, uh, import cars running five second quarter miles. The turbo technology wasn't there to allow the power levels that we're seeing now that actually almost certainly require a billet block. So you know, there the wasn't necessarily the requirement for those those parts back then. And the whole industry has progressed both with the advancements in the electronics for engine control, the advancements in the turbochargers, which have allowed to, us to uh, make more power, significantly more power. And then we get to a situation where the billet block almost becomes a necessity in some platforms if you want to actually hold it all together. So it's sort of been a nice synergy the way everything's developed and, and, and sort of come come to a head in the last probably five or six years at least anyway, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, one of those things where when the overall package sort of starts going, then all the sort of, uh, sort of different parts sort of keep pace and try to like uh, evolve pretty much at the same time because, yeah, there's no need to develop one of the parts if four other four other things need to happen at the same time and those are like nowhere near exactly. near happening but they were like four of the other things are moving forward and the fifth thing sort of keeps space also and then everything keeps moving forward yeah yeah uh, i think i think that's exactly it uh one one more part just while we we finish up on the thor engine here I think it's easy for our listeners to sort of think, okay, well, I've got a, a 1500 horsepower engine now that I can go circuit racing with or, or 3000 horsepower for drag racing. So I'm done, right? We don't even need to worry about that engine again. I, I assume you still have a required maintenance schedule at, at whatever power level this engine's been run at. Could you talk to us a little bit about what, what maintenance is required and maybe sort of what running intervals? Uh, yeah, so it is, uh, well, the time, timing uh, or the uh, cam, cam drive, of course, needs service service regardless of, of what kind of construction that is. So our Thor engine uh, uses a, a belt for that. So yeah, regular sort of uh, service for that. Like if the belt starts looking that there's some corner or something that looks a little bit worn, then yeah, it needs changing. Uh, internal components, uh, the connecting rods on that. So we currently only have aluminum rods available for that. So especially for okay. circuit racing use, that should theoretically limit their lifetime, but that's a little bit unknown at the moment, like how long those will last. So uh, RP968 has has run the most hours on, on the engine so far, and, uh, and as far as I know, haven't had any any uh, uh, issues with, with those yet. And yeah, that is also something that we can, can sort of... Uh, uh, look at a little bit uh, without having to disassemble the complete engine. So we have a, a ser service uh, patch cover or something like that underneath the engine where you would typically have an oil pan, so we don't have an oil pan at all. So we have a, yeah. a cover there. You can remove that and uh, pull out the 
the uh, uh, bottom halves of the connecting rod connecting rods and inspect those look at the uh, bearings uh, look at how the yeah if you see uh well i would guess if you start seeing large cracks then i think they probably would have failed already <laughs> but not really sure yeah, sometimes you might catch opportunity. <laughs> yeah so sometimes you might be depending on on what the geometry is where where the cracks start propagating sometimes you even see things that that start cracking and then they crack to a certain distance and then they stop cracking there and then you know you have a big design problem because you have lots of extra material there that doesn't need to be there <laughs> So I, I want to talk a little bit about that. I didn't actually realize you're running alloy rods in in that engine. And I mean, in, in general, I think it's it's fair to say that alloy rods, for the most part, are are only really used mainstream in drag racing because yep. the material does have a fatigue life. So basically, at some point, the the aluminium rod is going to end up failing. And obviously, when you have a rod failure. Uh, that that gets quite expensive, and I've I've talked to manufacturers such as GRP who make these alloy rods, and it's really hard to pin them down on you know what the the lifespan of these rods uh, is, is likely to be. That they, they kind of get a bit slippery when you start asking <laughs> yep. questions around that, and understandably, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of um, elements that come into this: uh, the stroke, the RPM ceiling, yeah. the, the specific power level, cylinder pressure. Uh, and and obviously then runtime of the engine. So, yeah, it it's really impossible to figure to figure that out really because the load case is so complex that you can't really sure. simulate that and do some any kind of reasonable calculation for that. Uh, what yeah, but like okay. I think what the most sort of um, pushed components would be would probably be like F one components from the V ten and V eight days they were really yep. pushing the rpm and they had like 100 rpm margins like okay you can stay this long at this rpm range so i would assume that they like like test those two destruction and then sort mm. of have some kind of a curve fit from there and then sort of start to figure out like how to do that because there's absolutely no way you can be that accurate with any kind of modeling so so yeah it's entirely understandable that that uh, yeah for for uh, manufacturers of, of rods or stuff like that, that it, it's not feasible to be able to to like give any kind of a, of even like good estimates on that. I, I think most people just sort of err on the side of caution and, and decide that replacing a set of rods once a season or once every fifty passes down the strip is probably cheaper than than windowing a block when things go pear shaped. Yep. So I, I guess that's what most people do. Uh, on the other hand, most people probably would shy away from fitting these rods to a a circuit race engine for for that reason the unknown sort of uh, life expectancy uh, i'm assuming the 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 reason you went down that, that direction is the reduced uh, mass of the the alloy rod over a steel rod um not really uh, it depends on what kind of stiffness you need because it's much easier of course to get alloy rod to be much to be stiffer at the sort of a uh, same weight because yeah you have the sort of a mass to stiffness ratio for, from uh, aluminum to uh, to steel is basically the same, but because of the mm-hmm. the aluminum rod being uh, what is it like ha- half the weight, one third of the weight, something like that. <laughs> I don't even remember anymore. Oh no, how embarrassing! But uh, anyway, so uh, that makes That's the. Not a test. <laughs> But yeah, so so the uh, aluminum rod will be much thicker, and that makes it much much stiffer, like a bending wise and all of that. So that means that the yeah bearing life is going to be much better, and all of that with the same same mass. But the main reason we went with that with uh, Thor was we were looking at a custom rod, 
we needed to get that. This was, what was this? This was almost close to five years ago already. Wow. Mm. It seems like it was like, yeah, 500 years ago. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yeah, we were looking at uh, rod manufacturers and no one really wanted to to say that their sort of uh, steel rods could do anywhere near the sort of uh, cylinder uh, specific power we, we needed from that. So yeah, we ended up going okay. with aluminum rods and we were in a time crunch. But uh, yeah, now we're sort of uh, more stringent on that and sort of shopping around for rods for our uh, Hell Engine currently. And have maybe a lead on that and hopefully we'll be running uh steel rods now for drag racing use so <laughs> tables have turned okay. all right so th that's probably a nice time to segue into the hell engine which you've mentioned a couple of times already so this is i understand it is your sort of take on the nissan r35 gtr engine uh, yeah there will be a yeah complete uh, bolt-in replacement which kind of a loosely loosely termed bolt-in so uh, exhaust uh, port location has been moved and resized a little bit and re will require a uh, different sized intake manifolds and stuff like that but but exterior okay. dimensions are the same uh, bolt pattern for the bell housing is, is the same uh, front drive uh, setup will be exactly the same uh, will be uh, yeah dry sump dry sump as as all our engines have currently been and and uh, yeah and again, of course, pushing right. the displacement as as much as possible. Again, so the the R thirty five drag racing market in particular, which I'm guessing is where this engine is is sort of focused, is, is really mature, and there is a huge amount of competition in that market um, with at least a, a handful of manufacturers making their own billet blocks, uh, power levels around the three thousand wheel horsepower, I guess for some of the the top teams uh I'm I've I've spoken to at least yep. and maybe there's some making more than that. Where where did you see a gap in that market? Where do you see the weaknesses of the current offerings and, and, and what do you think you can bring to the table that's going to be superior to what's currently on offer? Well, I, I would like to say that, yeah, we had a research team look into that and figure out the sort of market opportunities and what kind of a uh, cost benefit we could provide for that but uh now in reality it was just a question again of a of a customer talking us into making that engine really so <laughs> that's how we ended up with that but of course we did look into that like because it doesn't make sense to just make yeah for to uh yeah provide a, a couple of engines and have one, one for ourselves to test or something like that that wouldn't be cost effective at all so we did look at that a little bit and uh yeah, i did speak with uh, some of the uh top top um or current fastest uh, GTR sort of um, uh, stuff like um, like yeah over in Dubai a couple of places and uh, yeah spoke spoke with uh, a few other people but but um, yeah the sort of uh, longevity wise what they can push from that and and how that package works I'm a little bit tentative to see like if we could like yeah actually do four thousand horsepower so that is around thousand horsepower more than than what the uh, other engines are currently sort of uh, making, yep. but if the drivetrain on a, a R35 is going to be able to take that is a bit of a question because they're already like pushing the disc amounts in the clutch mm. packs really far, and they have um, sort of a gear shift time limitations going from second gear to third gear, and um, yeah, all this stuff. So, so adding a huge amount of power to that might not actually make the cars a lot faster. But again. Yeah, you you can run much larger turbos with uh, increased uh, displacement and much uh, higher, uh, again, much larger valves and uh, higher flow on that. So, 
So it should be much yep. easier to run the RPM also lower while still sort of maintaining the turbos in the sort of operating range. So there might actually be benefits in, in that regard, not just sort of power-wise, but but also sort of being able to go lower down in the RPM range and that will like help launches and maybe allow yep. for longer gearing or something. But um, yeah, uh, okay. some question marks. So obviously the the stock VR thirty eight three point eight liter V six and then uh, we see uh, there's there's a variety of kits but sort of let, let's say the billet blocks for drag racing use maybe around the four point two liter capacity or there or thereabouts at least w- what sort of capacity are you targeting for this engine? Uh, so we're going with uh, five thousand cc with this or it's like uh, I think one third of a cc below that or or something like that is the uh, accurate accurate number for that. Sure. Okay. And where where do you sort of see the the current weaknesses in the the billet VR thirty eight options? Where where do you sort of see the areas that you needed to focus on improving in terms of getting getting a better result uh, over and above just purely the the additional capacity? Uh, so so really the uh, valve size and cylinder heads and then the uh, crankshaft longevity is, is are really the okay. the main things and the crankshaft is also is actually yeah a really really big headache with <laughs> with uh, that engine the of course V6 I mean, it's makes a, that tricky doesn't yeah, yeah. it with the the size of the uh, the big end bearing size yeah six sixty degree even fire V six engine is absolutely horrible for like balance wise mm-hmm. and crankshaft stuff and. Yeah, size-wise, we could push the displacement further, but then we can't. Like, it's not we can't fit enough counterweights on the crankshafts anymore. So we're basically limited by by crankshaft counterweight amount to to the five thousand cc displacement, which is yeah, yeah, kind of interesting problem. Uh, we we talked to JR from uh, ETS uh, a couple of years back at uh, Airstrip Attack at Pikes Peak. And um, just getting some some data around sort of the the longevity of of their engines at three thousand wheel horsepower, and and I forget the specifics now, but I think he was talking a, about the the crankshafts they are running, which I think off the top of my head were Sunny Bryant billet cranks, uh, sort of you know just just about the best that that you can pay money for, and uh, I think they were were getting something like six to 10 or 10 to 15 passes out of a crankshaft and maybe 15 to 20 passes out of the valve train or rotating yeah. components. You know, the, these engines were just eating up expensive parts, but the crankshaft you, you've just sort of focused on. So is there something you can do that's going to appreciably improve the, the life expectancy of a crankshaft in a V6? Like you say, it, it's, it's, a, it's a design problem. Uh, and yep. and you want to make four thousand horsepower? So yeah, what what can you do to keep that crankshaft alive for longer? Yeah, so that is something uh, we basically uh, first of all going with a design sort of similar to our our Thor engine, where we have like um, sort of the shape of the uh, connecting pieces between the bearing surfaces is highly highly optimized and and smooth and and designed so there are no like uh, flat surfaces that are just like milled down and. And running a piston guided rods, of course, so that we don't have the ellipse around the uh, the bearing surfaces to get those a- as smooth of a transition as possible. But then also uh, we ha- have to go to a larger diameter bearings uh, for those, and also a narrow, more narrow bearings, so that we have more space between the bearing surfaces for for okay. for like a more sort of a design freedom for the uh, shape there. 
and also we have to go with uh, with a higher strength um, alloy also compared to our Thor and Rex engines because that yes 60 degree V6 engine is absolutely horrible design but uh, yeah th- that is what will fit into a, a, a GTR so that's what we have to go with yeah yeah I mean the, there's, there's some elements you're stuck with uh, I just want to go back and talk about a few of the elements you, you mentioned there so you, you talked about piston guided rods so you, you're talking there and, and most most engines the the big end of the rod is located by essentially cheeks on the, the big end journal of the crankshaft correct and you're yeah. doing that the opposite way yeah yeah so the uh, piston so the uh, piston uh, has like a much smaller gap uh, to the connecting rod and that basically guides uh, keeps the sort of uh well the piston of course stays in the bore but but keeps the sort of a connecting rod sort of centered in the bore basically and that means that we yeah, don't okay. need the lips on the on the crankshaft and that means we do we don't have the sort of small radius issue there and that uh, allows us to run sort of much more uh, evenly loaded crankshafts so will will be much much more durable in in addition of course to the other changes that we also had to do yeah, well, the other one I wanted to talk about there, that which would probably sort of go in the face of, of normal convention. You mentioned you've gone smaller on the the big end bearings, so, oh, so normally more narrow, but larger diameter. Narrow, larger diameter, but narrower. So that's just giving you more material between the adjacent uh, big end journals on the crankshaft to improve the the crankshaft strength. Correct. Yeah, yeah, and also uh, between the. Uh, so between the counterweight and and between the uh, uh, the big end bearings, also uh, for the yeah, yep. cylinders are like the same pocket. Yeah, yeah, that that is absolutely necessary. Like looking at the design, like I have absolutely no clue like how the the factory type crankshafts are even holding together at all. But okay, if they could do like ten passes at the power, then okay, that might like be. But it's of course one thing when you're pushing something to the absolute limit. Then you can like push things so much further. And if you're designing something to be able to hold to something for some amount of power, then then it's like a completely different sort of aspect on the sort of tolerance range where you're operating in. So if I'm like designing something to be able to to yeah do four thousand horsepower, then okay, it's not of course a guarantee that it will hold for four thousand horsepower, but I want to be relatively sure that that is going to work with that. But then when you're yeah, actually yeah. pushing that component, you might push it to 5,000 or or 6,000 horsepower or whatever and then oh it will still do like like 40 passes at 6,000 horsepower or something but it's a completely different thing than than like uh, designing something for a specification. Right, a couple more elements I want to talk about on this this engine. So, just bringing back an earlier part of our conversation, you you mentioned uh, a plasma coating on the raw alloy as opposed to a sleeve. So, Again, I, I think it, at least in my experience, engines at this sort of power level in the aftermarket, that, that isn't something that, that I think too many are doing. What was the driving sort of force between behind that versus a conventional sleeve? Uh, well, basically the sleeves just like eat up useful uh, space in the engine really. And mm-hmm. instead of having the sleeve, you can just delete the sleeve and run a larger bore instead so that again allows you to run larger valves and uh yeah overall sort of uh run run larger displacement at a higher rpm making uh more power really so really want to uh push that you you don't really need that sleeve in terms of the strength that that's not the issue the the alloy that you're you're running has sufficient strength so you don't need the sleeve for the strength aspect and that kind of 
feeds back into what you were saying about making that sleeve uh, thinner uh, earlier in our conversation. But yep. the the issue, of course, is we can't run the 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 ring directly on the alloy. So the the plasma coating just allows a harder surface that yep. that ring can then bed in and run against. Yeah, yeah, and that is yeah what Nicacel has has been used for also. Uh, we looked into potentially doing Nicacel stuff also, but we actually found that it was uh, easier to find uh, plasma spray stuff for that. And plasma okay. spray should also be more durable than than uh, Nicacel coating and not have the sort of same sort of uh, chipping issues and and stuff like that that you can you can uh, run into with uh, Nicacel stuff. And you have a much yeah. sort of um, sort of wider range of material that can be plasma spray coated also onto the cylinder. And yeah, comparing to the, of course, the uh, factory uh, GTR engine uh, VR38 uh, also has plasma coated mm-hmm. coated uh, cylinders. And well, those are actually, I think they run those uh, factory blocks up to like, uh, yeah, 2,800, 3,000 horsepower, something like that with with uh, those. So, so yeah, I think we're yeah, f- fairly I, confident from- we can stretch that a little bit further. From our conversation with uh, Tony Palo from from T1 Race, um, yeah, I, I think it sort of came to to be that people were prematurely jumping to a billet block on the GTR platform, thinking they needed to. Uh, and, and realistically, he said he hasn't found the limit of the VR38 factory block. The only reason they go billet is because they need more capacity for for what they're doing. So it's actually not the limitation that that many people maybe thought. Now. The the next part is these billet heads, which obviously sort of as a as a uh, recurring theme with with your race engines. And uh, it, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think anyone else is doing a billet head. I, I may be wrong on the VR thirty eight platform, but that gives you a lot of flexibility. Uh, obviously, you can do then anything you want. And you've mentioned a, a couple of times now how how critical these bigger valves are. And and I guess ultimately the engine is just an air pump, and uh, the the valve size is going to be one of the bigger factors limiting airflow in and out of the block so optimizing that obviously makes a lot of sense but there must be a bit of, of sort of weighing up here obviously the aftermarket parts industry for the VR38 is is very mature there's a bunch of different options for exhaust manifolds there's a bunch of different options for inlet manifolds and from what you were saying before uh, someone running your engine is going to have to sort of start from scratch on that. So I, I assume going down that path, you, you're you're expecting a massive improvement in performance for for that downside and needing to come up with these new components. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think we will be able to push a lot more power from this engine compared to the R38, especially looking at the exhaust ports on the uh, factory heads. Uh, intake ports also a little bit. So, so yeah, one of the sort of uh, main limiting factors there is apparently they need to make the engine really narrow to be able to fit into the engine bay on of the uh, of the R thirty five there. So, so that in the cylinder heads, for instance, they have really really short valves, which creates a, a big problem for the geometry for the uh, exhaust and intake ports. So you have a really small small sort of a short side radius on those, which means. Basically, you're not really getting any flow on that side side at all, mm-hmm. and and ultimately, uh, even though sort of we we don't really like to to sort of get on the sort of a valve valve flow or or head flow flow bandwagon, we think that's way overhyped compared to to how important other factors are in the engine. But ultimately, if you're not sort of talking strength-wise, then then the valves and the ports are ultimately going to dictate 
how much power you can make. The displacement only says at what RPM that's going to be happening at. So mm. so you can so yeah by improving the sort of a uh, um, yeah uh, port flow and valve size uh, that that is really a yeah what major major uh, improvement and I think we we can get a, a big improvement on that and we're also so this is the uh, first engine now with uh, due to the uh, super short short valves where we're uh, doing a contoured uh, intake and exhaust ports where we're contouring the port shape around the valve guide and around the valve spring pocket on, on the intake okay. side so this gives some a really wow. sort of a high tech and and uh, nicely nice looking uh, ports but it's not just for show it's actually required because of the uh, short valves sure okay in terms of the rest of the valve train components camshafts etc are you backward compatible there with the existing r35 gtr componentry or is everything there bespoke uh we will we will be uh fully compatible with that yeah we'll have we are uh, running larger uh, buckets uh to be able to run uh uh, custom camshaft with a larger lift but the uh, lobe location and and all the bearing size and all of that is is factory compatible okay again uh, with such a mature market for things like aftermarket cams for the vr38 i guess that's uh, something you need to factor in that makes sense to retain um yeah yeah definitely that is also something we looked into a little bit like what kind of a sort of a castings are available or like um I don't remember what what they're called, like the blanks that they um, that camshaft manufacturers sort of grind grind the uh, or finish the lobes from, like what kind of lifts they have available for those, and and yeah, they are are we found one manufacturer actually that does have a uh, according to them significant amount of extra material there to increase the lift, so we have accommodated that on the cylinder head design okay. uh, to to allow for uh, larger lobes than than what can be fitted on the factory engine. Okay. How far away are you from sort of sending one of these down a drag strip for the first time, or at least maybe heading to the dyno for the first time? Um, that will probably be February, March, something like that, I think, uh, is what I was okay. looking at. at, at Not far moment. away. Yeah. Okay. Exciting. Oh, I look forward to uh, watching the uh, development of that and, and see see how you progress. It uh, definitely sounds like an exciting platform. Right, I think I think we'll head towards wrapping this thing up, uh, Oscar. We're, uh, we're we've gone a, a little long already, but it's been a, a great chat and some some exceptional insight. Uh, what what's sort of next for Alma Racing? What do you sort of see for yourself in the future and the direction that you're heading? Uh, well, sort of overall, I think uh, well for the current Alma Racing stuff, um, probably doing bespoke engines maybe one-off engines for like concept cars or supercars or stuff like that is is something where we're maybe looking into because now yeah now we're we have enough data from different engines already that we know okay we are kind of relatively good at guessing on 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 enough engine engine things to be really really cost effective at doing custom engines so that is something that we're looking into and we've yeah actually been contacted by multiple multiple um uh, supercar manufacturers but um not, nothing sort of moving forward yet at the moment. There's also something okay. that yeah, we, we want to be relatively picky about uh, choosing the right customers because, yeah, we've been bitten a, a little bit by, by uh, j- jumping on on the sort of uh, wrong customers uh, uh, too early. So try, trying to be a little bit more conservative on that aspect now. But um, overall, sort of um, using our uh, engine design stuff, we, we really want to get into uh, doing aviation engines. And that's actually, I was... Uh, just a couple of weeks ago in in Dubai there for the Dubai Air Show and uh yeah was it the uh, industrial 
uh, industrialization uh, summit there there and uh, yeah networking and trying to find uh contacts and stuff like that to get uh that that uh ball rolling really and that yeah really really sort of uh started started out from looking at the thor engine where we concluded that it's actually like too powerful for for circuit racing <laughs> use that and the the power to mass ratio is i mean as as far as i know the best of of uh, any OEM circuit racing engine ever, including all F1 engines. We're like, well, we don't really like want to reduce that because, I mean, having a good power to mass ratio is, is should be like a positive thing. Definitely, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, yeah, so a- aviation engines would uh, definitely be something and the numbers uh, do look really good and that's something we're trying to sort of wor- work out and, and go- but that would be a daughter company. Of course, Elbow Racing would continue, continue operating okay. uh, as currently. Yeah, I, I, I've recently uh, passed my private pilot's license, so I've been messing around with uh, general aviation and, and oh, light aircraft. For, oh, it started about 25 years ago. It's been a slow process, but I uh, finally took that one off. And, and one thing that uh, obviously with a, an engine and a tuning interest in, in, in my background I've always sort of been disgusted at, at the uh, technology of of the general Lycoming or Continental general aviation engines. I mean, yeah, they 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 do a job and they're, they're reliable. And let's be honest, we we want reliability in a light aircraft, but uh, yeah, the the technology just isn't there, and the fuel efficiency and the power uh, leave something to be desired. So I'll, I'll watch that space with some interest as well. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be uh, improved on there. So both with the, uh, I think with uh, increased technology, you can also uh, push push the sort of fuel economy and power envelope much further while while maintaining reliability because of that in technology yeah. also. So. Yeah, I, I have no doubt there's, it's uh, an area that's rife for, for upset. Uh, and yeah, uh, it, would be, it would be definitely uh, good to have a, a little bit of improvement in fuel economy and power. I don't think any pilot would be, be against that. Now, what, what advice, I guess, if you could go back in time now and, and uh, advise a younger version of yourself looking at setting out on the career path that you, you've had over the time you've been involved in the industry, what advice would you give yourself to, to maybe fast track your, your learning and your experience? Ooh, that's a tough one, really. Um, there are like so many different things that, that you could kind of do better, but then again, feel like would have made a different choice then it's like difficult to see like what that path would have led to for instance so so really really a hard to say but of course i mean some general things like um like uh, really figuring out like how much budget is needed for some type of a project or something like is it worthwhile to do that or not because yeah to be honest we we didn't really have the budget to really start our company or really have the budget to develop any engines or anything like that at all but but here we are anyway but i think we are basically probably three four years behind or something because of uh basically budget constraint issues so so that that is definitely something that i would would sort of uh yeah try to sort of yeah, to tell myself to focus on and think a little bit more about that aspect and have some kind of uh, maybe future plans also. But of course, also, yeah, still still be open to 
to modifying those. Yeah, I, I think that's solid advice. Uh, I, I think particularly when you're young in this industry and you don't have the experience, and obviously that's where we all start out, you're in that situation that you don't know what you don't know. And I would imagine even dumbing this down to a project car level, uh, the number of, of young guys and girls who get involved in building a project car without a real solid understanding of what the the finished project that they've got in their mind at the outset, what that's actually going to cost. And, you know, I've been guilty of this myself. You get involved in, in starting a project and, and so six months in, you realize that uh, you just don't have the budget that this car build requires to do it at the level. And that if, you, if you're not conscious of that at the get-go, it can do a couple of things. It can end up uh, being quite disheartening, and often we see projects end up getting abandoned because you know there's just not enough pro- progress on it. Or alternatively, you end up with a project that just spans the next decade, which isn't a lot of fun, and you get stale on it. So, yeah, I, I think being really as realistic as you possibly can about what a, a particular project is going to cost is is smart. And I mean, there's always people you can you can bounce ideas off to. to get a better idea of that people have been down that path before and and already have the runs on the board yeah but then also like if you look at it that aspect that probably would be a lot of project that wouldn't even have started or wouldn't have learned anything from that and because yeah if you conclude that yeah you need x amount of budget and you don't even have anywhere close to that then yeah it's not going to happen are you going to blow up enough stuff to like learn things effectively and and uh, yeah, they, but then you of course need to be careful about not not blowing up things that are too expensive that you can't like recuperate <laughs> from because that that is then then it's going to slow down learning the learning process yeah. a lot. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I would also no, think that maybe being sort of maybe sort of uh, more confident and sort of not expecting everyone else to have the sort of same knowledge level. That's maybe one of my sort of personal sort of uh, downfalls when I'm talking to someone that that supposedly is an expert then I said okay like immediately assume that okay mm. like they're sort of uh, equal and have thought about all the different things and sort of the same amount of level and, and thought about different varieties of course they probably will have lots of experience with data but they don't necessarily like will understand how that works in different situations and can like apply sort of knowledge to other things that that I think that that is one of uh, my like personal uh, strong points is being able to sort of understand the overall picture and uh, and how sort of mm-hmm. values apply in different conditions and and okay like this works here so that means in this condition we can like do 10x that or or in this condition okay we need to be super careful about, about that because the temperature is like the limiting factor and we're having slightly higher temperature so we need to reduce this whatever quantity by 20 percent or, or something like that and like figuring out how things apply to different different levels i think yeah i've wasted a lot of time and and had a sort of a yeah some some sort of a really bad customer experiences based on sort of overly trusting sort of other people's judgment that don't necessarily sort of understand the topic but sort of yeah sort of balancing out sort of and being more confident is is what one thing i would definitely think that would yeah, have have sort of a benefited no sort of having that attitude much earlier. Oh, yep. All right. Last question for today. If people want to follow you or find out more about your products, uh, where are they best to do that? Uh, well, 
we try to update stuff that we work on, but <laughs> we sometimes do a better and sometimes worse job of that. So, uh, but yeah, we do. Uh, so our uh, website, elmoracing.com, uh, we do have links to our social media there and also to our, uh, yeah, web shop. So shop.elmoracing.com. We're on uh, Twitter, uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram, which we, yeah, update sporadically completely at random so yeah if you want an overall picture then basically you have to follow every single social media to gather the information because we're really bad at sort of putting together a package so you can just follow one social media but yeah that's something we, we really need to work work at but uh yeah we try to update some stuff anyway it's hard when you're you're that busy designing and developing uh world beating engines so we'll, we'll give you we'll cut you a little bit of slack for <laughs> thanks <that>, oscar <laughs> All right, we'll drop some uh, links in the show notes anyway so people can follow those to uh, to, to find you. So, uh, look, uh, we'll finish up there. Oscar, thanks uh, again for a great chat, been really insightful, and uh, we look forward to seeing at, at least the the development of the RP968 at World Time Attack in 2022. And uh, I'll be... Keep an eagle eye on the R35 drag racing uh, scene uh, to see how your engine uh, stacks up once that gets released. Yeah. Uh, thanks for, for having me on the podcast. Super nice chatting again. And yeah, I think sort of me going off track all the time and you sort of reeling that in a little bit and keeping things under control, That's I think makes great. it makes uh, yeah, really uh, good stuff for, for viewers. So, All right. Thanks again. We'll, we'll talk soon. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.